I'm Steve Phillips. I don't like Black History Month. And this is the Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips podcast, coming to you in February, also known as Black History Month. To be clear, I do like black people. I still laugh at the Tom Cruise scene in Jerry Maguire where he's talking about show me the money and winds up screaming, I love black people, which is why I don't like Black History Month. And uh, I will say that, you know, I've been black for a long time and I find this month, we'll get into it a little bit, but it a little bit, uh, a fair amount tokenistic actually really just highlights the problems that we have in our society in terms of not recognizing black people at other times. But I will say that one of the great joys of my professional life has been finding and following talented black leaders as they go out in the world and make a major difference. And today we have just such a guest, Jessica Bird, who is one of the most important political strategists in the country. And I'm really thrilled to have her on the show to take stock of where we're at in terms of national politics and where we go from here. And so joining me for that conversation is my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. Happy Lunar New Year. Happy Year of the Ox. And did you guys do anything to celebrate? Hi, uh, Steve. Yep, uh, we sure did. And I really got to give a shout out to my sister-in-law in Canada, because at first we probably weren't going to do anything. It's COVID and people aren't getting together. And we might have just done something, the three of us small at home, make dumplings. That's our that's, it is a main tradition of Chinese families is to make and wrap dumplings together. And we do that just the three of us each year if we're not doing anything else. But my sister-in-law in Canada said, can we do something on Zoom? Can you teach us how to make dumplings? And I just thought it was a fabulous idea. It had not even occurred to me. So I gave people some recipes. They made the filling beforehand. And um, my daughter actually primarily taught not just my brother and sister-in-law, but also my niece and nephew, who are eight and five, and my parents joined in New Jersey. And my, my in-laws, my mother and father-in-law, joined from another part of Canada. So we had this wonderful Zoom gathering, dumpling making party, and I highly recommend it. And I just kind of saw it as, you know, there are like these silver linings, or at least it's nice to be aware of and mindful of when we can notice silver linings of this really challenging time and year. And for me, that was definitely one of the highlights. It's the getting creative and creating new traditions. And I think that we will definitely keep this as a new tradition of making dumplings together by Zoom for the you got, Lunar you guys New should Year. should have recorded it and yeah. put it on YouTube. Probably a big hit, I would think. Oh, I, I definitely took some photos. I wanted to, you know, respect people's privacy and not everybody. I'm the social media junkie and I have no shame. And yes, um, it's usually unfortunate. Like I only just expose and violate the privacies of my <laughs> child and my husband. But I try not to do it to my entire extended family. <laughs> but it was... Um, it was really special. So thanks for asking and thanks for the well wishes. And we are uh, bidding good riddance to last year's Year of the Rat. No no offense to the Year of the Rat, but Year of the Rat 2020 in particular, we are happy to say goodbye to and we're happy to be in the Year of the Ox. So Steve, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm really excited to be chatting today with our friend, Jessica Bird. So glad to be able to talk to her. It's been a while and she's been up to just a few things. She's just, just been a little, a little busy bit. and yes. just doing a little bit, you know, just doing quite a bit to change the world and make it a better place. 
just wanted to give our readers a little bit of background about her. And this is like the abbreviated bio because this woman has accomplished so much and has such an amazing background. Jessica is the founder of Three Point Strategies, a home for electoral strategy that centers racial justice. She is a nationally renowned political strategist known for her unapologetically people-powered approach to campaign strategy. Jessica is one of the architects of the Movement for Black Lives Electoral Justice Project and the Black Campaign School and has raised nearly $10 million for Black electoral strategy and movement building. She has served as chief strategist for Black women U.S. Senate candidates, congresswomen, mayors of major metropolitan cities, and she's served as the chief of staff to one Georgia gubernatorial candidate, also another friend of ours, Stacey Abrams. In 2016, Jessica was named the January Woman to Watch by Essence magazine. She was also named one of the 12 new faces of Black leadership by Time magazine. And Rolling Stone named her one of the most influential millennials shaping the 2016 election. And hot off the press, she has just been named one of Time's top 100 people making that incredible list. And finally, and this is my favorite part of her own bio on her Three Point Strategies website, and you're going to like part of this too, uh, Steve. Jessica is made up of Ohio Winters, Working Class Parents, Toni Morrison Novels, Leslie Nope Idealism, and Anything with Guacamole on it. Jessica, welcome to the show. So glad to have you on. Thank you so much. And for such a generous introduction, I really, I really appreciate it from both of you. I'm excited about the conversation. I feel like we, um, I kind of started with, with, with you all on this journey in some ways. And I feel it feels full circle to, to get to look back and forward with the both of you. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you. You, it has, it has been this journey and, um, you know, this past really the, the work in Georgia, right. Brought, you know, a natural point of, the world finally starting to see what's possible, right? In terms of the the outcome in Georgia, but that is a lot of also how we had worked for Stacey. And so it's reflecting back on all that has just been really, you know, I think this is the time to do that. Although when uh, uh, Charlene was listing out all those, I think we left out something. Wasn't there like a, uh, was it the root black 100? Jessica's one on that list. <laughs> I was trying to, and like I said, was, I, I had to make the short bio well, yeah, because right, but there were so many things that she was getting. That's so yeah, sweet. I start getting a complex. Like, why haven't I done anything? Why can't <laughs> yeah. I get off any of these lists here? But um, I and, do. I do want to say say seriously that it really has been. Um, you know, my wife Susan and I were early, you know, partners with um, Jessica in a lot of the work. So just watching mm-hmm. the trajectory and the in and the increased influence and impact. Um, when uh, we were connected to Jessica by our friend Shindy Maxton, she was working through a, a project at one of the country, the Beltway nonprofits. And Shindy says, they're going to take that project away from you when you go to the bathroom. Right. So this that was right. <laughs> she had an idea. And so we were really happy to partner and work with it. It's just really been great to watch it flourish. So you about, you know, raising $10 million for the movement. I remember Jessica trying to raise $10,000. Yes, and that's so right. So it's right. really been, you know, very affirming and heartwarming. And, you know, Susan and I, you know, obviously feel a great deal of affection for you, you know, Jessica, but we've really been, very just, you know, proud to partner with you and see all that you have done. And so I just wanted to say Thank that. Thank you so much. And I, I just cannot 
uh, allow uh, you to heap flowers on me when, um, you know, you saw something in me. And I just want to be very direct about this. You saw something in me that I wasn't getting in any room in this country at all anywhere, (laughs) not one corner, you know, even, even when I felt like there was an incredible web of people who could see where we are now. And I think even beyond that, across movement, across the progressive sector, across electoral politics, there still was not the respect and the trust for, for black women leaders, namely young queer black women leaders from Ohio who didn't come from an Ivy League background. And you always um, reminded me that I could ask for more, that I could do more, that I had a right to more. And I just truly, from the bottom of my heart, want to thank you for that. Um, Because I have never once forgotten that it just takes that one person to really believe in you. And so I'm, I'm thankful that I've gotten a chance to make you proud because I truly know that 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 launching point, it just, it was everything. It was everything. And I think I met you when I was 27 and I just turned 34 and it went so fast. (laughs) All right. Well, it went so fast. And I just um, I'm just thankful. And I hope to be the catalyst that you have been for me and for so many others. I I truly hope to be able to give that back to others. And and that's what makes this circle round. And that's what's so so delicious about this community building that that we all have been doing together. Yes. Well, n- now that you're an OG, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, so be- before I start crying from all of the yeah, I was gonna say I'm not ready. It's yes. too early. <laughs> so let's turn to U.S. politics, right? Yeah. So, wasn't that the line? A different from Hamil- type of crying, right? Isn't that the the line from Hamilton? Can we get back to politics now? Right. <laughs> so. And Jessica, I'm glad that you weren't, uh, you know, shy about sharing your age because l- lately I'm like, is Jessica even 30 yet? Because, man, like, because I remember meeting you in your 20s and I'm like, yeah. but now I'm like, okay, she's in her 30s. I know. I'm in, <laughs> yeah, I'm leaving my early 30s, Charlene. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I wanted to talk about where we're at in terms of the movement for social change, movement for racial justice in particular, there's been a lot of the uh, defining components of your work is bringing the, you know, that energy of, of the, the, that movement into the political sphere. And so, you know, we, we're, we're at this point now, right? It's been an incredible year, half, you know, yeah, right? So we had you know, all the latest killings of uh, uh, unarmed black people in 2020, the video around George Floyd really unleashing all of this energy and activism across the country, mm-hmm. really rocking the country and, and the world, frankly. We did a whole podcast around this, but there was a lot more attention and support and acknowledgement of systemic racism and what we have to do about it and some, you know, tentative steps in that direction. And then, as I think you know, a lot of us predicted, a lot of that mainstream attention dissipated, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and I think I well, I'd hear your thoughts on this, but I feel like a lot of us made tactical decision to focus, particularly on really trying to get you know the white nationalists out of the White House, and so we accomplished that barely. And mm-hmm. 
now we've got, what I said in the last podcast, white centrist grandpa, right? And so, <laughs> and um, which in a lot of, it's his own way is very heartening. You know, he did that walk with his wife around the White House with the, the on Valentine's and, you know, there's having decency in a person is, does sure. not, is not nothing. But obviously the issues that gave rise to those protests, the underlying dynamics of systemic racism, centuries-long systemic racism are still with us, the racial wealth gap, et cetera. And then you've really been on the forefront of that struggle around building coalition and bringing up the issues, injecting them. So where are we at? So we've gone through this period. Here we are, beginning of this new administration, beginning of the post-Trump era. How do you see from a movement standpoint where we're at and where we need to go from here? I've been calling it, we need, before we were in political transformation, and I actually believe that we achieved that, that there has been a broad scale political transformation over the last five and six years, specifically because of movement and of uh, leaders, um, you know, in in all of our networks who have been willing to really um, test and experiment with an inside outside strategy that is testing the limits of our strategy and where we can win and how we win while also testing the limits of our progressive values and what we're willing to stand for, defend um, and, and implement. And largely, I mean, we, we were begging people to care about Georgia. We were begging people to care about black women. We were begging people to care about activists or organizers. We were begging people to care about policing and criminal justice. And and when I say begging, you know, cause I feel like now it can feel like hyperbole, you know, people don't remember that Barack Obama could barely fill a room in New Hampshire in 2007. Um, they remember Barack Obama filling stadiums. Yeah. Well, it's important to remember that Barack Obama couldn't fill uh, a room in New Hampshire. And I remember I was one of those organizers. I was getting 75 people to an event to see Barack Obama. And it is important to remember that because then when you have the opportunity to land on that other side, you get to make decisions. And that's where we are. So we've moved from this large-scale transformation is not to say we won't need much, 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 much more, but I've been calling it a political transmutation Mm. (laughs) where we really are mutating Mm. into the next phase of of political governance. Um, Winning means you get to govern. And so many of us, um, after President Obama won, were so freaking elated. I was I was young. (laughs) I was 20. (laughs) I was 20, 20 years old when he was elected. So I was young. But I've I've heard from mentorship from 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 learning from and being in the orbit, really the debrief of that of that era was really connected to the idea that he was somehow let off the hook, or Mm -hmm. somehow really allowed to not engage in the infrastructure building that the progressive community needs. And I think that that's an important reflection to make now because now we have had an incredible bruising um, after being really in, in, uh, you know, a a fight against um, these really dark forces that are still here and they're also transmuting, you know, and that we, we have really an opportunity to say, all right, one, we got to get the story right. So I, I want to start there. I found it interesting, um, especially after spending four years really working 
inside of a black movement space that has been largely very righteously and right for this, but um, side-eyeing, you know, electoral politics. Mm -hmm. And to have been in, you know, electoral politics where, you know, I know so much of um, the strategy and the players and to really see there being this like lack of, clarity and understanding of how on all cylinders we had to even be to get to this point. And there, especially I would say, and I feel like this is, this is, this is a podcast to say it in, but you know, especially the like smart ass white folks who are just progressive enough to, to eke by and claim incredible amounts of strategic credit when the shoe leather and the, you know, the amount of an innovation that it took to capture millions of new voters attention and commitment to going to vote despite all of the ridiculous barriers to do so is an effort that just cannot be distilled down to one or two smart people who have millions of dollars right it truly was on that front too right so it's like people you know there's all this uh, ongoing unrelenting overemphasis slash obsession with, oh, you know, the white moderate voters, those are the key voters, et cetera. But what's, what's in terms of getting the story right, yeah. it was black, people don't realize that it's not just that black folks and people of color talk about people of color issues, people of color understand the country period in all of its mm-hmm. racial dimensions. And That's so it right. was black people in South Carolina who said, this country needs a white Democratic candidate to beat this racist in the in the in the White House. So it wasn't that his campaign was so brilliant. It was the assessment of the Black South Carolinians who said, "No, this gives us the best chance." At every single corner, Black people were making choices. Mm -hmm. Every single one, and that sophistication is oftentimes dumbed down or made seem symbolic or as if we just didn't have enough information so we always operate out of fear no if 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 you if fear is not always just this negative based thing it's about survival and who have survived this place is black people have survived this place and have still been able to get on the other side of the phew we dodged that particular thing into a place of dreaming, which is why I really believe that this part of the idea of this transmutation or this is that we we have to restore our movements, restore our organizations, get shake off the resistance mode, release that rapid response, minute to minute fear, because we've earned it. And that means that right now we actually get to completely reimagine even the way that we operate with each other and our relationships and the way that we tell stories and and engage in even deeper strategies than the ones we've been able to because we were fighting a dictator. Jessica, I'm going to jump in here and say, like, I've, I've been uh, holding, like, instead of fighting back, the urge to say, you know, preach, <laughs> just listening to you and um, <laughs> snapping, my, snapping my fingers. Um, but speaking of, you know, transmutation, which I love that concept and framing, you've been deeply involved in translating the energy of Black Lives Matter into electoral power and, and just doing an incredible job. 
And along with Maurice Mitchell and the Working Families Parties, it's one of the reasons why we highlighted you as one of the key people to watch in 2021 and beyond in our first episode of the year, which is um, an episode we titled, Who is the Next? Stacey Abrams. And you helped mm-hmm. um, launch the Electoral Pro- Justice Project in October 2017 and are now passing the keys to new leadership yeah. there. I wanted you to help us explain and explain to our listeners what the mission of the Electoral Justice Project is and what was your role in bringing that to fruition? Yeah, uh, EJP, uh, EJP as we call it, um, I consider my political home. Um, and what that means for me, uh, even though I, I w- helped to found it, is that it really is a community where Black electoral strategists can come together in, grounded in the really the, the values and the strategies of Black liberation, but utilizing uh, the ballot and the, the and elections as an opportunity to gain to gain progress, you know. Um, and so EJP is about 60 people strong at this point. Um, and it's Black organizations, Black leaders who are engaging in in electoral strategy that specifically has the opportunity to either transform a community or uh, or create a more meaningful life for Black people in this country. And so some of the examples of work that we do together are um, in St. Louis, um, Kayla Reed, one of the the co-founders, led a campaign not only to elect a new prosecutor and oust the racist prosecutor who refused um, to to take even the Michael Brown case seriously. Um, So not only were they able to elect a new prosecutor, but then created a ballot initiative to shut down the county jail that was creating in a, a cycle of harm in the community. And that was sourced by activists whose families were continuing to go into that county jail. And so utilizing the ballot as an opportunity to, one, get representative leadership who actually care about the people that they lead to, to truly change the conditions of the place where, where we live and to mitigate harm. And then I would say a three in St. Louis now is headed into a mayoral race where one of my great friends and one of the first races that I worked on um, over the last few years, uh, Tashara Jones is running for mayor. And, um, and again, they are experimenting or you know, they're leading in a way that is gathering community input. They are sourcing debate questions specifically from the community and from voters who are leading there. And so the Electoral Justice Project is truly a collection of all of those strategies. And so we have activists and strategists from all over the country. And uh, for folks who are interested, we, we compiled um, really a program to tell the story of of this type of work that lives at the intersection of justice and elections. Um, And it was called the Black National Convention. Um, It played this year, a week after the the Democratic National Convention. And you can still watch it on blacknovember.org and you can be introduced to all of these really unsung heroes. They're not in national news all the time, but what they are doing is that nitty gritty work of weaving together opportunities for progress where they live. Yeah, let me tell you, but one of the things I've been so impressed about with the uh, Electoral Justice Project work, and I think in terms of the, maybe to frame it up for the listeners as well, is there's a 
there, you know, it's like when people would criticize the any aspect of the protest against the killing of black people, and I'd be like, I remember thinking like, what's the appropriate, what do people think is the appropriate response to watching a policeman put his neck on a black man who's on the ground until he dies, right? I mean, how, how polite are we supposed to be, right? So there's a raw, there's a rawness about that. There's a rage about it. And obviously, you know, George Floyd wasn't even the first person, obviously. And so the the public manifestations, certainly early public manifestations of the Black Lives Matter movement was a lot of expression of that rage in terms of even like, yeah. you know, shutting down highways and stuff like that. And I think the outside yeah. pe- world, people are kind of like, well, they're not fully understanding all the tactics and the strategy and whatnot. And so what's been very impressive to me is to watch the work of Electoral Justice Project translate that energy, that rage, into electoral organizing and power building. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think, is is really what I have seen that work doing. I've been very impressed by that. And then in, in also in the context of the, of the convention, which, frankly, I didn't even know really was happening until, you know, fairly certain shortly before. And it was very poignant for me, frankly, and, and that you guys were referencing the, the 1972 National Black Political Convention. And That's so right. for people who don't know about that, 1972, the leaders and the different strands of the movement, black nationalists, electoral politics, Democratic Party politics came together. Mary Baraka, Jesse Jackson, uh, Dick Hatcher was the mayor of uh, uh, Gary, Indiana at the time. And notably, that was 72. All those folks got together behind Jesse's campaign in 84 and 88 to help to help propel that. And that campaign helped to pave the way for Barack Obama. So in terms of tying all those pieces together. So, but what struck me is, I mean, you're a young person just, how did you even know about National Black Political Convention? <laughs> and how did you know to try to tie those strands and those threads together? Um, well, first of all, yes, history lesson. Um, <laughs> that was so delicious, yes. You know, this This is, um, so one, I have a few things to say to your broader questions. I'm going to take them in, in threads. The first um, is a direct response, and that is, um, that's the beauty of a political home, is that part of what we do in EJP is we, it's not just about the programmatic work, although that takes the majority of the time, because we really are seemingly a, almost a volunteer-led space. We have resources to do the work, but we utilize those to support organizations on the ground, to support leaders, to support capacity building. Um, but what we do is we study together the work of uh, Black people in elections across history. And so in a retreat um, that we were able to have in person before the world shut down in 2019, you know, we were talking about this Black National Convention and really reading about it. And one incredible thing about the Black National Convention that has really motivated me as I led, as I led the creation of this one, was that there has always been this pressure and this call for Black people to align in huge ways, politically, culturally, the way we talk about what we want, our demands, our agenda. And that largely people felt like the Black National Convention, as I've read about it, was a failure. 
Mm. or that it at least didn't achieve the North Star goal that the organizers had to align a maximum amount of kind of black movers and shakers and activists around an agenda, that they were not able to ratify the agenda. In my experience this year in building a virtual version of it, it was intended to be a 30,000 person convention in Detroit of which all of us <laughs> would have gotten the chance to be there and to, to really simulate uh, a convention. But um, is that I feel my, my current analysis is that it is actually not as important that all black people are reading from the same songbook or at least singing the exact same song. Mm -hmm. But what is important is that we all believe in our collective power and are willing to wield it when that collective power can be harnessed the maximum amount of good. And we kept watching that this year. We kept watching that, you know, um, yeah, that, that magic of, you know what? We're, you know, why don't we just go ahead and give us two new new senators in Georgia? All right, Black people. Yeah, y'all, everybody got the right information. All right, let's go. Oh, oh, hey, Black people, we got to keep each other safe because white nationalists are, you know, descending on the streets, but we still want to uprise. All right. And you want, you know, it felt like you could feel people locking in. And that to me is what uh, building out the BNC really felt like was the opportunity to sell a lot of, of stories to know that not every person in the, in the BNC agreed, that I don't agree with everything, that you and I don't agree with everything, but, the, but that we have an infrastructure, we have abundance. And it is only through the lens of the white gaze that we lose this concept of our own collective power. But that actually, when we make decisions to be together, to strengthen, to, um, to go together in, in the journey, we win every time. And so I wanna find those moments versus harping on all of the ways that we are different. Right. And and I just, I really do hope people, it's such a rich and beautiful history and mm -hmm. it felt so good. We had elders and the, um, you know, who were sending me emails and just saying how much it meant to them. And yeah. I do have so much regret that it couldn't be in person. And that was a really difficult decision as a leader to kind of figure out how we still intervene. It really was an intervention. It was intended to say, okay, the Republican National Convention is one week and the uh, the Democratic National Convention is another week, but that isn't enough to hope right. and to wish that the right messages are being told. We should tell the story of this incredibly um, diverse and huge movement utilizing. Yeah. Yeah. You, should, you should not feel regret at all. I mean, the, the conventions were virtual, right? The party conventions and that yeah. It's uh, it's there now and part of the historical record, and it was it was literally beautiful how it was put together, and yeah. really incredibly strategically significant. So I was very Thank very. You. Well, shout out to Dream Hampton, who so many of you know, um, the really uh, famous uh, filmmaker who who also produced um, and directed um, Surviving R. Kelly. I actually I had a dream about her um, working with me on this and uh, practice in the mirror to ask her if she would. And she wow. she spent her entire summer with us, really offering her her mm. genius vision of how to tell a story in a way that was compelling. And, and so I just thank you so much for watching. And it, it means a lot that, um, that it meant something to you. And I'm really hoping 
that we get to do more of those types of things, you know, where we get to do that. But there was one thing I just wanted to say, um, you had started your last question and, um, I just appreciate, I really appreciate you, your, um, perspective on how you're watching what we're building, because I, I'd have to tell you in, in true earnest, I don't feel malice or anything about this, but very few people reflect that back to me. Um, very few, most people are like, what are you doing over there? Or, I mean, have they gotten their shit together yet? Or, (laughs) you know, oh, that was nice that you did that, but is it actually going to be, you know, there's this really um, infantilization and just disrespect really for, for black activists that is very covert in Mm -hmm. our industry. And even though folks kind of fetishize it, so they're like, ooh, you're with, you know, you're hanging out with the radicals. Um, It is not respected for what it brings to the climate where we're we're all fighting on all cylinders. And so one one thing when you were were starting the last question, I was thinking, well, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because I remember in 2016, I was on a phone call with you. It was post uh, post the, the uh, Trump victory and everyone is in a tailspin and you largely had this beautiful movement that had been, you know, building uh, for the last couple of years and uh, had been written off as anti-electoral. And I remember feeling a, a very real responsibility towards that because I was with them. I, I love, you know, the movement for Black lives and just Black activism in 2014, 2015 truly shaped my politicization and my understanding of what was possible. And so I felt like y'all don't just get to write off one of, you know, a political renaissance. And so what I've experienced even in this year is I saw this thesis through, I saw this work through, and it brought me so much sharpness and clarity and depth. And I also just got to witness people being so freaking brave. And what's one of the first stories from from the Democrats? Defund uh, is the reason why we are not um, where we wanted to be or why we lost these seats. And, you know, I found that I actually was shocked by it, which I maybe was an act of naivete. But what I more or less felt was sadness for everyone unwilling to give even just a little bit of respect to the mostly working class Black people who are being so brave and have been brave. And and in hearing you reflect it in the terms of power, I realized was new for me this year. And that has been too bad because- yeah. Well, let, let me just say, I guess for the record and for the listeners, I mean, I would, I was watching the, the convention, I would pause it and I would, you know, and then turn to Susan, I'd be like, I have not seen something this sophisticated in terms of the interplay of building a movement and manifesting its power, dealing with the movement part, with the electoral power part. I have not seen anything this sophisticated since the first Jackson campaign in 84, when the movement people came together to propel him forward. And so I just wanted to reflect that back to you. I think the work that you're doing. That means the world to me. Thank you. It was, it, it was like an exorcism. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I think we can move on, but I just wanted to say quickly yeah. another point that you're raising around, because yeah, obviously this is out there in terms of the defund the police. You're, you're the, capturing the attention of the, of the uh, first black president of the United States with your snappy slogan, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, and I want to I say this publicly too, right, that I, I, I saw your tweet, your Twitter thread. You're like, are you all going to wait with me? We're going to say yeah. defund the police. I may have even said in a staff meeting, all like, I don't know if that's the right demand, right? I bet. So yeah. I was, you know, very concerned. And I, and I just saw something a day or so ago about a whole major new program in a city that's being funded uh, by having defunded the police. Yeah, sure. And moved money <laughs> into more, you know, social services, community response, et cetera. So I just want to say for one, the evidence is there that it has worked. And so I want to own that. And the other thing is I'm working on this book right around the continuity of the Civil War, working with the, mm. the, new, the new press and called How We Win the Civil War. So I'm doing all this research. The defund the police was by the Republicans in 2009 when the Department of Homeland Security said white domestic terrorists are a major threat to this country and we have mm. to do something about it. And the Republicans lost their minds and lost their ish and shut down that department in the Department of Homeland Security. Now, that's not defunding the police. Right. Oh, no, it is. Yeah. And but I also, yes, yes, yes to everything you said. But I've also I'm like movement is not the Democratic Party's PR campaign. If the Democratic Party right. wants clear and compelling messaging, they have to build that. They don't actually get to just um, utilize it when it works for them and throw it away when it doesn't. And that demand was surfaced from the streets and not one candidate was forced to say it had to all they had to do was demonstrate their own affirmative positive vision for the people that they were running for and they obviously weren't able to do that but that actually isn't black movement's fault because black movement was able to inspire and demonstrate an affirmative vision which is why 26 million people um, marched with us organized with us which is why we were able to change the map which is why we've been able to show up in um, creating and writing and drafting the Breathe Act, the first activist drafted piece of civil rights legislation um, this summer was because the sharpness of the demands for the streets made it uh, possible for us to really create a set of solutions um, for the Hill. And so that's our work is continuing to translate the streets to, to governance. And what is so frustrating is that there somehow becomes this responsibility for any time you've captured public imagination for us all to be perfectly in concert or that's actually not the job of movement and it never will right. be. And, and people will be it, very a, dissatisfied if they right. think it should be. Yeah. And it's a distortion of what actually happened. And we should, you know, we should, uh, we did the, I did this column for the nation that we'll, we'll link to in the show notes showing that for all the onks that a lot of the white Democrats had about, oh, defund the police, it really hurt us. The Democratic vote went up. The yeah. one place that we picked up a house seat and flipped on the Democratic side was in Georgia. That's and right. the, Georgia has saved the entire world, almost yeah. quite literally, between the presidential and the Senate races. And so it sure didn't hurt us there. 
That's right. Heck yeah. And I, you know, I, um, oh, I have so much to say here that I want to talk to you about, but it really, it stretched me. And I remember I was gritting my teeth and I felt nervous too. And, you know, I, I would go out and I would protest and I would come back in and I'm like, so, so what my job is to somehow distill and water down uh, what folks are demanding. No people in my community are saying the police are terrorizing us and we want you to invest in black lives. And I think that to go back to the first question of our conversation of where are we is we have got to evolve We've got to evolve, all of us, like every single one of us are being asked to evolve. Our government infrastructure no longer works for the people who live here. Our, our democratic party, our, our two-party system, our, you know, our procedures such as the impeachment process and on the filibuster and all of these things that we've watched being pushed to their limit and not actually protect the people. And so because of that, all of us are being asked to evolve. In the same way, calling myself into this, I have to evolve into a place where I'm thinking forwardly about governance, about leading a constituency versus just always being in the resistance. And so we all are inside of an evolution and the, the, the Democrats have truly benefited from civic society evolving and culture evolving and, and our, the way that we expect to be with each other evolving, but they have not demonstrated that they're willing to be courageous in their evolution forward. And I just think all of us are being asked to do that. Yeah. Jessica, I'm going to jump in here. And I know you feel the same way that I do, which is I just, I could talk to you all day. You know, we have so many all so many questions. And yet, unfortunately, we do need to sort of wind down and wrap up here. But I do want to just check in with you personally. You have been, you know, rather public over, um, I think, you know, the past year or so about wanting to find greater balance in your life and take time to do more self-care. And I'm a huge proponent of that. I feel like that message cannot, you know, be emphasized enough for all women. But in particular, I wanted to see if you can just share briefly some reflections on the impact of prioritizing self-care for yourself, especially as a Black woman, and in particular, um, all the kind of work that you are, you know, trying to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, I... Um... I'll keep it real just because I, I always try to, but is, um, is, I know a- <laughs> that's what we love, love about you. You keep it real. <laughs> you know, it has been a learning. I actually think it's been harder to learn to care for myself than it has been to do some of the work that I've done. Um, you know, I feel like I spent the last five, six years just really feeling like I wanted to prove that, that, that this is that electoral justice is possible and that Stacy was possible and Georgia was possible and black women mayors were possible. And um, that started to really take a front row seat to my life. And I realized actually a couple of weeks after the black national convention, I ended up getting really sick. I had a panic attack. I fainted, you know, just the drama, <laughs> the drama when your body is trying to get your attention and say, Hey, that's, Hey, that's hey. right. We need you to, hey, look over here, like you have a body <laughs> and you need to eat three meals a day and you need to move around. And, you know, COVID really created also this level of vigilance that I had already felt. 
So then you took, a, to, I took this vigilance that I already felt intellectually, politically uh, in my work every day into a, a really a bodily and a spiritual vigilance around um, getting, not getting sick or taking care of my family, et cetera. And um, what I've learned in the past few months is that it isn't possible just to kind of recreate, you know, new rituals. I actually have to release all the other stuff. And what I've been doing is I've actually, you know, I've, I've called people and I've offered a few apologies for times I was moving too fast or, or careless. I have asked for some apologies, um, released the feeling of that intensity of some of our relationships in this political space, feeling that I had done either, you know, made a, the wrong move or had a misstep. I also have celebrated. And so I've really taken a lot of time to like, write down what I've learned and what I'm proud of, um, write, you know, allow my family and my partner to celebrate me in these moments, which I truly, I'm not going to, I haven't done, I have not done. And um, part of it was because it just didn't feel like the work was complete enough to take any level of a victory lap. And now what I'm learning is it's not necessarily a victory lap. It's just like an acknowledgement that this huge season of learning and growth for me is now changing into a place where I have, thankfully, because of my own hard work, but really because of a very beloved community, um, I have some power and that feels really good. And what I've learned from myself is that we are really forced into, or at least always feel that vigilance around getting every part of the journey right and landing it in a way that people understand having that Facebook post that people are like, damn, they're doing it or getting that job that people are like, wow, that's going to work out or, or doing huge, big things like weaving together strategy across, across the country, you know, and you're like, is this big enough? Is it sharp enough? Does it include everyone? And what I've given myself is the right to just do my part, to just do my part. Like, and that that could actually be enough. And so for anyone listening who is like trying to figure out what their part is, is get deep with what you want your life assignment to be, whether that's work or personally, and then actually start to live into it the same way you might your big ambitious goals. Wow, that's beautiful. You're here. All right, yes, we're saying we, 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 we could go on forever, but then our, our producers <laughs> would uh, uh, go on strike. Um, so <laughs> that is all the time that we have for today. And so as I, as I mentioned at the top, it's Black History Month and that uh, despite my qualms and hope and the, on the positive side, Jessica and the Movement for Black Lives and the group she works with to put together an ode in the form of a video uh, that's an ode to the global protest and marches that took place last summer and what's now being called uh, Freedom Summer. Yes. And that video, which was released online earlier this month, is titled Black Futures Month. And it's very powerful, and we'll link to that. Now, Black Futures Month is something I can get behind. <laughs> All <laughs> right. So thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. You can follow our guest, Jessica, at Jessica L. Bird. And you can find us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. 
If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. We appreciate it. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.